We believe the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a restoration of the original Church established by Jesus Christ, which was built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We declare to the world that the fullness of the gospel has been restored to the earth. We declare with boldness that the keys of the priesthood have been restored to man. We declare to the world that this is the day referred to by biblical prophets as the latter days. It is the final time before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign on the earth. Hello, everyone. As you may have noticed, we took a break. In the last two years that we've been doing this podcast, we've never really taken a break before, and that's because of the nature of the Come Follow Me program, is that it encourages weekly study and preparation. I know I've found that the chapters or sections assigned have a timely relevance to events or issues of the moment, and I'm sure many of you have noticed the same thing. The reason we took a break for about a month or so is because I welcomed my second child to the world, and quite frankly, between juggling a new sleep schedule and adjusting to life with a new infant, I needed to remove a couple of things from the docket to reduce and simplify my life. Healy was very accommodating in this, and I'm very grateful for that. Oftentimes, the hardest thing about doing something like this, something that requires consistency and significant effort, is that once you stop for a break, it can be incredibly difficult to get started again. We discussed how that should go, and we determined the best thing would be to simply pick up again with the lesson from this week instead of trying to summarize or do a marathon recording session of the lessons we missed. I recognize this means we'll be leaving out some really important lessons and powerful verses from the Go and Do catalog. But we're not done with the year yet, and there's still plenty more to come as we wrap up Doctrine and Covenants. Once again, thanks for listening. We hope that you get as much out of it as we do. We've never really set out to generate a following, and we've never made an effort to make a single penny from this. So the fact that we have a core of consistent listeners is great. The gospel is meant to be shared, and this is just one way to do it. Okay, so starting with section 129, this one's kind of an interesting one. And I remember when I was like a young man hearing about this and not realizing that this was like a section of Doctrine and Covenants. Just, I think it was one of my leaders or something was like, if you ever, <laughs> if you ever see a ghost, <laughs> ask him to shake your hand. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, if anything ever appears to you, Ask him to shake your hand so you can tell if it's a good entity or an evil entity. And I'm like, what? I'm not going to ask anything. I'm getting out of Dodge, you know, <laughs> if something appears to me. But, um, you know, then later on, you read that in section 129 that it's basically the idea being that if it's a, a good spirit or a resurrected being, a resurrected being will shake your hand and you'll feel it. A good spirit will say, hey, I can't do that. I can't shake your hand. I, I'm not, I don't have a body. And a spirit that's trying to deceive you, if, like it says in verse 8, if it be the, the devil as an angel of light, um, he'll try and shake your hand, but you won't feel anything. Um, I think mainly the principle behind this is that, yeah, there are spirits out there that are good there are spirits out there that are trying to deceive you and that's exactly how they'll treat it one will try and deceive you and one will only appear to you if there's some sort of legitimate reason and message to bring you and so you know you, you hear about 
especially <laughs> around Halloween, you hear about people that are ghost hunting and stuff. And it's entertaining to watch some of the shows and whatnot. But I think what it really gets down to is if you're looking to, to find something, uh, you may find it. But there's always we know that there are spirits out there that are trying to deceive us. They're trying to distract us from truth and um, they're not going to be forthright with us. And so, yeah, I think when when it comes to this section, it's basically what it's getting at is that the, the devil will always try and deceive you, trying to trick you into believing something that isn't true. And the Lord and his representatives will not. They'll be upfront with you and honest. There's not much more to add to that. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. It's a very <laughs> practical uh, test. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, given the opportunity to deceive people, uh, the devil and his angels will try to deceive you. And and Heavenly Father and his servants won't. Uh, um, I mean, you know, you can expand that to many other parts of the gospel. I, I think about the gospel being framed in the context of it being simple and adaptable to everyone. And the philosophies of man slash dogmas that are born out there become ever increasingly complex and become very much uh, almost like a secret society slash exclusive clubs, you know. And that's a thing is like, you know, for me, it was funny that, you know, in our church, <laughs> you know, we in the Church of Jesus Christ, um, everyone is invited, you know, and there's no cost of entry. You know, everything is is out in the open, you know, all of the scriptures, all of the resources the church now has put online, you know, and everything is becoming even more adaptable to the sense that making everything even more accessible. A lot of changes that have been made to the block schedule, to the temple ceremony, to the, you know, the quorums, the young men and young women organizations, you know, everything is to make it more accessible and kind of more straightforward and easier to digest. And I see things where um, people that are, especially online out there searching for truth and trying to uncover things mm -hmm. it tends to like it all of their truth leads to more complexity and more like uh mental gymnastics you have to jump through in order to make things fit and uh i kind of see a little bit of well i'm not saying that this is what that chapter is about but i see some resemblance to the fact that heavenly father is pretty straightforward we'll either uh You'll either get to shake the hand and you feel it, or we won't give you a hand and we'll just tell you why we're here <laughs> and we'll move on. <laughs> um, anyway, one thirty. Yep, section one thirty. This one's got. It's interesting because it's talking about in the historical background to it that while a lot of the other sections are presented as like here's a revelation, it's a it's almost like a speech that this one was one of the sections that is created from the notes from William Clayton. Um, it's stuff that Joseph Smith said that was recorded by William Clayton. And then from those notes, they created a, a section about it. So that's why it's kind of like in different, almost subsections about different topics and stuff. But um, it, it's got a lot in here, a lot of interesting stuff. What did you think about some of the stuff about angels? 
So I'm curious. Well, yes, that's interesting. It's interesting that only angels that that are assigned or were born on this earth, basically, minister to the inhabitants of this earth, which then it kind of adds like almost like a familial tie to things mm-hmm. where like maybe maybe we are all linked together as a family all the way to Adam. And it's that familial bond that allows the intervention or the connection from you to be able to claim your descendants or try to help them or so forth. Um, and then and then it was interesting where he says, uh, but the angels do not reside on a planet like Earth, like this Earth. But they reside in the pre- verse seven. They reside in the presence of God or in a globe like a sea of glass and fire where all things for their glory are manifest past, present, future and are continually before the Lord. So it kind of it the it. It's I have no idea how to understand this, but it kind of <laughs> seems like um, the Lord. This is stupid and maybe not right, but um, if light is relative, like and when we look at the stars, we learn that we're we're actually looking into the past as we see the light from the stars, because by the time they get to us, that star is might have been burned out or millions of years have gone. So we're being told that where the Lord and his angels reside is a place where they can see all things past, present and future, which is something that's hard for us to understand because we're kind of on a linear track in this life. We are going, you know, like, um, and then it, it talks about the place where God resides. It's a great Urim and Thummim. And that phrase Urim and Thummim, we've been, we've heard it many times. We've heard it as far as the interpreters that are used to interpret scriptures that the prophets of old used to use. Uh, we hear it as, uh, you know, in the last days, everyone will have like their Urim and Thummim. And now we hear that the place where God resides, it's a great Urim and Thummim. So what is it? Is it like a portal? Is it like another thing? I don't, but it's it's definitely not, uh, you know, Westgate Resort. It's it's <laughs> somewhere unique. And, and um, I think what's, we're being told is the things where God is and his angels are, is a different place than we are. We are. Um, and I think it might've been in the lesson where it talked about sometimes people think, Oh, well, God, it dwells in your heart or, or, or we attribute God, like God is everywhere. And, 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 and it kind of calls out that that's not true, that God is a specific person in a specific place, you know, uh, his presence and his influence is everywhere, and right. his ability to see—we're told here, past, present, and future—is continuously before him. You know, so there is some of this uh, omnipotent or omniscient type of thing. But uh, then we're told, you know, kind of like a little bit about the, this earth that it's—it too is in a process of change, and it's on its own path. In verse nine, that it too will become like a crystal and it will be a Urim and Thummim to the inhabitants of those that dwell thereon. So it's kind of like, you know, we're kind of been told that this earth will become the celestial kingdom that will be our reward, you know, which then if you go all the way back to the New Testament where the Savior says, yeah, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. It kind of takes even a deeper meaning for the fact that he's telling them, hey, you're going to be okay, you know. Uh, your status is not dependent on what these social cultures or time periods that you lived in. It's more uh, your destination is determined more by your ability to follow the gospel 
and that, you know, anyway. I think something interesting about the Urim and Thummim is even with Joseph Smith, when he was translating the Book of Mormon using a Urim and Thummim, it only worked when he was worthy to use it. And so it says, you know, that the earth will become one. Then the white stone mentioned in Revelation 2.17 will become a Urim and Thummim to each individual who receives one. That's in verse 10, whereby things pertaining to a higher order of kingdom shall be made known. Like you'll have a, it, it will help you have a broader understanding and broader vision of who you are and where you exist in the world, in the universe. But it's only going to work if you have earned it, if you're worthy of it, right? Um, and I, I think that that's kind of an interesting thing. I don't fully understand even what the Urim and Thummim, what those words mean or what how that all you know what what the stone's role is in all of this or if it's a even a physical stone you know if it's a metaphor um but i think that it's an interesting thought that the earth that we live on today will someday also receive as it says in the uh, in articles of faith its paradisiacal glory it will also become a, a celestial kingdom and it won't be the same necessarily the same place that god resides in right now um, but it will be the, in the presence of God. So it will be brought up somewhere. It will be close to him. It will be accessible to him. Um, just an interesting idea. Yeah, I I, um, I wonder if there's some similarities or some descriptions of the Liahona in the Book of Mormon and how it works and what its purpose is in comparison to the Urim and Thummim. Because they, they seem very similar. Like, I mean, it gives you guidance. It works on your righteousness, you know. Not those that look in it with the wrong intention or the wrong heart or not being commanded aren't don't see anything useful. You have to be righteous to, to be able to see it. And then this idea that the Urim and Thummim, you know, it's, it's funny because if I didn't live in this time, I would think that would be very like uh, far-fetched, maybe. Mm. But now, I mean, we look at almost everyone has a cell phone, and what do we use it for? You, it gives you access to a whole mass amount of information. Whether that information is good or bad, that's debatable, right? But it can be used for great, uh, um, great effect to help you learn more things, to communicate instantly, to share information, to record, to to like connect everybody from miles and miles away all across the earth. You can talk instantly. And then you think, oh, well, God lives in a great Urim and Thummim where he can see past, present, and future. Uh, it sounds like a data center to me <laughs> where all data goes through there, you know. And for because I'm, I'm not trying to belittle like the magic or the importance of these things or, or, or how wonderful and, and unknowable it is. But I think it's kind of gives you a glimpse on of what is possible. You know, we, we can keep tabs on each other from miles and miles away even countries away, almost instantaneously, which would be something that for someone like in the early 1900s, it would have been like, what? Yeah. That's yeah. unbelievable. And now to the Lord to be able to tell us, well, I'm even further away from that and I can see everything. And I can also send messengers and angels to help you when you need them. It just kind of like, for me, it's kind of like a pattern that kind of shows that's not far-fetched and that's not out of the realm of possibility of the way that even our own flawed technology is progressing i'm sure the lord has even more that uh we don't understand you know 
Yeah. I thought um, a really interesting part was uh, starting in verse 18. Whatever principle of intelligence we attain unto this life, it will rise with us in the resurrection. And if a person gains more knowledge and intelligence in this life through his diligence and obedience than another, he will have so much the advantage in the world to come. There is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of this world upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience that the law upon which it is predicated. Um, here, it, it means to me that whatever experiences we have, whatever things that we learn through those experiences, whatever things we learn uh, through just kind of gaining knowledge, we're going to have that forever. It's not something that we're going to uh, lose. And it also kind of says, you know, that the more you learn in this life, the more that will benefit you in the life to come. And we kind of have this idea that as soon as we go to the other side, that all will understand everything perfectly well. But I think that if we understand things, if we try to understand things here and we try to gain knowledge here, it's not necessarily that we will, you know, know more than others because it, all knowledge will be available to us. But I think what it means is it will it will feel like, ah, yes, it will feel like confirmed. You know what I mean? Yeah. It'll feel like you'll have a stronger testimony of it. You won't have to struggle with things as much if you have gained a knowledge of it during this life before going to the next life. So. Yeah, I really like this, and it actually led me to Alma chapter 41, where um, I think it's Helaman speaking to his sons. He's talking about restoration, mm. um, and he says in verse 4, he says, uh, And if their works are evil, they shall be restored unto them for evil. Therefore, all things shall be restored to their proper order, everything to its natural frame, mortality raised to immortality, corruption to incorruption. Uh, race to endless happiness to inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says in verse 10, do not suppose because it has been spoken concerning restoration that ye shall be restored from sin to happiness. Behold, I say unto you, wickedness was never happiness. And then in 12, he says, and now behold, the meaning of the word restoration to take a thing of a natural state and place it in, is the meaning of the word restoration to place it in a natural, uh, take it from a natural state and place it in an unnatural state or place it in the in a state opposite to its nature. Oh, my son, this is not the case because the meaning of the word restoration is to bring back again evil for evil, carnal for carnal, devilish for devilish, good for that which is good, righteous for that which is righteous, just for that which is just, merciful for that which is merciful. And that makes a lot more sense because I think what we're trying what uh, we're trying to tell is whatever attributes you develop in this life, you it'll carry on with you. Right. Now those could be good attributes or they could be bad attributes. And the fact that you're stepping into the next life isn't gonna automatically heal all hmm. your problems and woes that you decided not to face or couldn't face. But it's like a process, line upon line. And there are some things that we aren't gonna understand until the next life. Or things or wounds or, or scars that won't heal until the next life. But I also see that sometimes we can be tempted into, like uh, in verse 1 at the beginning of this chapter where, where Helaman says, And now, my son, I have somewhat to say concerning the restoration which have, I have spoken. For behold, some have wrestled the scriptures and have gone far astray because of this thing. And I perceive that your mind has been worried. So he's 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 kind of explaining restoration, what it means, what's going to happen when we die, and, and what happens to our knowledge and our desires. And he and he's warning us that many go far astray because they may think, oh, I'm not going to deal with this habit. 
or I'm going to ignore this because when I get there, oh, I'll be kind and, and I'll be happy. And, you know, and it's like, no, it's not a magical pill uh, that fixes things automatically. All the things we have to work on, we'll have to face. We'll have to face them. Now, that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, this life we should leave as a polish finished product uh, no but i also think we should be careful that we don't procrastinate certain things and realize and and i think what uh, that verse in verse uh you know in 130 section 130 where it says a person gains more knowledge and intelligence and be, through his diligence and obedience than another it's that key through diligence and obedience that we gain more knowledge and intelligence and experience that it'll be an advantage and it's not an advantage over someone else. It's an advantage over where you would have been if you would have wasted the time of your probation, if you would have decided, oh, I'm just going to put it in cruise control for a while. Right. And let those things worry about later. You know, I think we're it's it's like, I don't know, everything so far in the doctor comes and say, I feel like the Lord is trying to ingrain in us uh, like a habit and a desire to continuously learn and progress. And he's even told us in previous sections, learn out of the best books, learn about peoples and cultures and governments and learn about processes. And there's management. Uh, there's the gift of of uh, managing of uh, I think he called it the uh, order of operations or something like that, you know, and there's all of these things and seek after these things. And I think if we learn and love to learn how to learn and learn how to learn <laughs> that everything will work out. I think it's uh, most damnation that we talk about or or stopping of progression is almost all self-inflicted you know um, and I think likewise he's trying to tell us that your ability to continue to grow is kind of up to you and your agency you know? well and it's also talking in reference to enduring to the end that it's not a complacent or a static state of being it's not just like okay I've done everything I'm supposed to do now I just have to endure the rest of my life it's basically saying, look, the more knowledge you get, the more uh, intelligence you get through diligence and obedience, the better off you're going to be in the life to come. The, but, the, you know, you have so much more advantage in the world to come. And that doesn't mean that you're going to be necessarily better off than someone else. All it means is, to me, you won't be as shocked by truth. You won't be as overwhelmed by information a lot of it will be like, okay, yeah, okay, I was on the right track. Oh, I knew this. I got a testimony of that during my life, you know, that this is all, it, it's ringing true to me and it, it feels comfortable to me and I can take it more in stride than if I were coming in with no idea of what was coming, you know? And so I think as members of the church, when we look at the, the concept of enduring to the end, uh, even if you've, you know, checked all of the quote unquote, you know, ordinance boxes, you know, baptism and temple marriage and all that. It doesn't mean that you should just basically wait it out, you know, spend the, the your time having being obedient and being diligent so that you can learn more knowledge and intelligence. I think that's really what he's getting at here. So 131, where are we? Oh, yeah, this is a long one. <laughs> this is this does introduce an interesting doctrinal truth, though, that I, I'm not sure has been presented very well, or at least this clearly before. Um, and verse one, in the celestial glory, there are three heavens or degrees. 
And in order to obtain the highest, a man must enter into this order of the priesthood, meaning the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. And if he does not, he cannot obtain it. Um, we, we learned previously about the different degrees of glory. I thought it was interesting that uh, one verse six, it's impossible for a man to be saved in ignorance. You know, and ignorance, I would also say innocence, because Adam and Eve were innocent in the garden. Everything was perfect, but they couldn't progress anymore, you know, and just like it kind of also means that sometimes we tend to shelter ourselves from things and we want to not be part of the world. And we think that that will keep us clean and make us holy. Um, and we have to face all these things, you know. You cannot not overcome temptation because you never expose yourself to it. You have to overcome. And just a weird thought I've had in the last couple of weeks is sometimes in our desire to be perfect and not acknowledge our mistakes or shortcomings, I think we tend to deny the atonement of Jesus Christ and his role. And and so, and I'm not saying that, oh, that, that means you have a, a right to go sin and do all these things. That's not it at all. I think it, it's our being a disciple means that you're not perfect in in and it and you don't have a choice about it. Yeah. We we all are imperfect. Now it's what we do with it. Do we face it? Do we acknowledge it? And do we decide decide to work on it? And if we stumble, like in in the last general conference, the gentleman who 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 mentioned, hey, if you stumble like 900 times, but you keep getting up, that's fine. That's called a disciple. But if you stumble and you hide it, and you pretend there's no problem, and you try to like lie or conceal it then yeah, that is a problem. So I, I I think about, (laughs) so this is, this is kind of funny, but um, I started watching this show not too long ago, and I'm not going to mention the name of the show, but if you've seen it, that's fine. Um, If you haven't, the point still stands. This show is about a family that doesn't allow their children basically to interact with the world, as they put it. Um, they shelter their children as much as they possibly can. It's a reality show. It's on TV. Um, but they they really have have strived to keep their children uh, not even like eating sugar, nothing, nothing. They haven't even had Coke, you know, like they don't even allow them to interact with uh, one, one of their teenagers gets an opportunity to go to San Francisco. And you think that these people were like, we're going to lose our child. You know, they talk about how they're going to this strange place and who knows what they'll come across and their their excuse for this this behavior is like we don't want them to be exposed to things that might influence them in a negative way we don't want them to we want them to stay innocent and young for as long as possible so that they don't get corrupted by the world in this scripture of it's impossible for man to be saved in ignorance the mere having to make a decision having to choose to avoid sin, being presented with the option to sin, and choosing to not do it is necessary. And yeah, sometimes we're going to make a wrong choice and we're going to sin. You know, say what, a lot of people have different opinions about 
um, internet blockers and stuff like that for their for their families that I'm going to put this protection on there so my kids can't access certain things. There's some degree of, of necessity to that. Um, at the same time, I think that growing up, we never had one because my parents were like, here's the things you shouldn't go to. Here's the things you shouldn't do. You know, was I perfect? Not always. Was I did I was I forced to make a decision every single day? Yeah. And I think that that is necessary because then at some point in your life, that protection is no longer there. And at some point in your life, you're kind of on your own to make decisions. And if you've never had to make those decisions before, you run into a lot of complications because you're not used to saying yes or no. And you're just you want to try everything all of a sudden. And it can kind of lead you to a, a bad state. Um, I just think it's interesting that, you know, kind of sheltering or protecting from this idea of we don't want them to be exposed to to things that we don't agree with. That's a dangerous thing. You know, I'm not saying you should purposely expose your children to bad things and be like, oh, do you like that? <laughs> what, what should you do about it? But to perfectly shelter them like that, like it just maintains them in, in ignorance. And the Lord's saying, you know, if you really want to earn the celestial kingdom, at some point you have to be forced to make positive decisions in the face of negative outcome as well. So I don't know. There's a lot to that, I think. Yeah. And and I mean, as a parent, you never want to like, oh, my child, you're five years old. You eventually need to drive here, take the car. You know, <laughs> right. everything has to be metered and, and done correctly. But it, it comes down to that principle. Like sometimes we're tempted to want to live back in the Garden of Eden <laughs> as opposed to live in the celestial kingdom. Um the Garden of Eden, we don't know right from wrong. We're ignorant in a way. Uh, and we don't have temptation or the ability to really make decisions. And the celestial kingdom is we're not ignorant. We can make decisions, but we choose to do the right thing, you know. And that, that for me feels more correct as far as like agency, you know, like do we really have agency? And if you really have agency, then you really have to have the opportunity to do right and wrong, you know? And and so, anyway, um, I thought verse seven was really interesting because it's kind of like, I don't know, because this is taken, like you said, from the notes. So I'm curious if at some point he was pondering and asking like, because I th would think about the same thing. Is, is there invisible things are you know how does these things work you know spirits and appearing and transportation i don't know but it, the lord's kind of saying uh uh everything like it's kind of like a scientific law everything has yeah. matter you know it's just your ability to measure it you know and for us from joseph smith time to our time we've seen that this is a true principle as far as being able to see atoms and i think quartz are even smaller it, it's funny because it's like you said, it's a it's almost like matching or mirroring the, the idea that matter cannot be created or destroyed. We have this idea that all matter has to exist and the Lord is kind of reinforcing that we think that, oh, he exists outside of these laws of nature. I don't think so. I think he created those laws of nature. And just like all other law, if he did not abide by them, he would cease to be God. The difference is he can kind of create them as he needs them to be, as he needs them to exist. Um, and it says, you know, 
all spirit is matter, but is more fine or pure and can only be discerned by purer eyes. What does that mean? It's like when you hear them say in the scriptures, our eyes were, the spirit opened our eyes, or our eyes were opened and we saw. There are things that maybe, uh, I don't know if it's a frequency thing, if it's a whatever, but the spirit can cause your eyes to be open to be able to see these more spiritual things. And it says in verse 8, we cannot see it, but when our bodies are purified, we shall see that it is all matter. When 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 you are purified or sanctified, you'll be able to see all of the other things that are purified and sanctified as well. And I think that that's kind of an interesting idea, that there's a lot that is around us that's existing that we just flat out can't see because we're just not in that state yet. All right. Polygamy. Here we go. Yeah, this is the... I feel like this is the the real meat on the bone here of this lesson, but it's also like the most complicated one always to talk about. Um, and this is the revelation given to Joseph Smith to present to mainly to Emma, but to the entire church as well. And mainly to Emma because it addresses her specifically later on in the revelation. And also because this was in 1843, and Joseph Smith had already been somewhat involved in polygamy since about the mid-1830s, and some of it his wife did not know about. Um, she was not fully aware of all the people who had been sealed to him. Um, there was a, a time when she completely rejected it. There was a time when she kind of accepted it and said, okay, but I want to decide who it is, or at least approve of who you're going to be marrying. She brought up um, two sisters, the Partridge sisters, and it turns out that he had actually already been sealed to them for a couple of months when she said, I think it's cool if you seal yourself to these people. Um, and so this was a, a revelation to kind of smooth things over with Emma and also to kind of say, this is a legitimate commandment. It's not just something I'm coming up with out of nowhere. We're having a revelation about it. It's going to be, you know, so, so-called admitted into doctrine. Um, and there's a lot of a lot of very relevant things that have nothing to do with polygamy in here about eternal marriage, about temple marriage uh, that are very applicable to us even today, not in a polygamous situation. But <clears throat> I mean, this was a we think it's challenging now to talk about polygamy. Back then, it was just as if not more challenging. We think, oh, everyone was on the same page. Everyone wanted, you know, they knew that they were supposed to be doing it. Not everyone was on the same page. Not everyone was super comfortable with this. Not everyone who was practicing polygamy was super comfortable with it. It's always been a controversial kind of, I, I view it as a spiritually taxing commandment, you know, something that does not come naturally. And yeah, there's going to be an inherent feeling of this doesn't feel right. This this doesn't, I don't know if I can be faithful to a woman if I'm also married to other women. You know, that that to me would be, from my perspective as a husband, the most complicated thing like how do i do right by everyone you know and uh, that i can't even imagine what it might be from a woman's perspective yeah so there there's two two key things i learned in this go around one was the difference between concubines because that's some one of the things they asked about was concubines mm -hmm. uh when they were reading of the old testament and i think this began when joseph smith was translating or retranslating part of the Old Testament. So they asked about concubines and these prophets like Abraham and Moses and so forth that had concubines. And then it's told to us that concubines were not the same thing as a wife. 
that they were of a lesser social status. Um, and and um, and so then that that led me to uh, the Institute Manual and in chapter in the student version of Doctrine Covenants Institute Manual that covers section 132. It's chapter 51. There's a good distinction that for me started making a lot more sense because there are some times in this section where it says, and those whom this law uh, receive it must obey it. Like if you wanna know about it, then you have to do it. And there's a little bit of confusion what is being talked about. And uh, in this in this institute manual section, it's talk. It's Elder Marcus B. Nash of the seventy is explaining this with Joseph Fielding Smith and Bruce R. McConkie. So they're using them three, and then they pair it down together. Um, but the distinction they're trying to draw is a distinction between the new and everlasting covenant and a new and everlasting covenant, mm -hmm. and that those two terms mean two different things. And so. It says in the revelations recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 132, the Lord reveals a law called a new and everlasting covenant and told Joseph Smith that he and all those who receive it, this law must obey it. This newly revealed law is part of the new and everlasting covenant restored in the dispensation of the fullness of times. Elder Marcus B. Nash of the 70 explained that the difference between a new and everlasting covenant and the new and everlasting covenant the new and everlasting covenant is the sum of all the gospel covenants and obligations. And again, restored on the church in these latter days, because the covenant has been restored in the last dispensation of time. It is new, and because it spans eternity, it is an everlasting covenant. In the scriptures, the Lord speaks of both the new and everlasting covenant and a new and everlasting covenants. For example, in Doctrine and Covenants 22, verse 1. He refers to baptism as a new and everlasting covenant, even that which was from the beginning. He likewise refers to eternal marriage as a new and everlasting covenant. He then speaks of a new and everlasting covenant. He's, he is speaking of one of the many covenants encompassing his gospel. When the Lord speaks generally of the new and everlasting covenant, he's speaking of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which embraces all ordinances and covenants necessary for salvation and exaltation of mankind. Neither baptism nor eternal marriage is the new and everlasting covenants. Rather, they are each part of the whole. The Lord taught as pertaining to this new and everlasting covenant, it was instituted for the fullness of my glory and, the, and that and he that receiveth the fullness thereof must abide and shall abide the law or shall be damned. To be damned is the state of being opposite to progression. All who do not obtain the fullness of the celestial celestial exaltation will to some degree be limited in their progress. They will be damned to an extent. Those who choose not to enter into the new and everlasting covenant of marriage are damned because they cannot receive exaltation to the highest degree. And then lastly, and, and this is kind of the summary, Elder Marcus B. Nash clarified that the doctrine of eternal marriage taught in Doctrine and Covenants section 132 is not plural marriage. Some people, including some church members, inaccurately read Doctrine and Covenants section 132 verse 4 to mean that plural marriage is necessary for exaltation, leading them to believe that plural marriage is necessary a necessary prerequisite for exaltation in the eternal realm. This, however, is not supported by the revelations. As recorded in Doctrine and Covenants uh, 
131 and 132, the Lord introduces the law of eternal marriage by expressly referring to the sealing of one man to one woman. By setting forth the law of eternal marriage in the context of monogamous marriage, the Lord makes it plain that the blessings of exaltation extend to each man and woman who worthily enter into the covenant of eternal marriage prepared, performed by a proper priest or authority are independent of whether that marriage is plural or monogamous. So that's a whole lot of mouthful and a whole lot, but it like I really enjoyed it because it really made a lot more sense when the Lord is talking about a new and everlasting covenant that could be a specific ordinance and the new and everlasting covenant means all the ordinances together, you know, and so and how oftentimes we have erroneously thought that plural marriage was necessary for exaltation or it is the law of the celestial kingdom and that is not the case right <clears throat> he's also talking about um just some of the the fundamental truths of uh, an eternal marriage like in verse 15 if a man marry him a wife in the world and he marry her not by me nor by my word and he covenant with her so long as he is in the world and she with him their covenant marriage are not of force when they are dead and when they're out of the world therefore they are not bound by any law when they are out of the world that's the idea of till death do you part right it's in like a lot of marriage ceremonies <clears throat> the idea that <clears throat> sorry the idea that um your marriage is valid on this earth and then beyond that it is not and there are some other situations where you know later on he kind of describes what a uh, an eternal marriage is like is that it is valid even beyond this life and that that's kind of the difference between a lot of the marriages that happen in the world where <clears throat> they do end until death do you part which means literally this marriage is valid until either one of you dies um i think it's kind of interesting that when in the in the manual for this lesson there's online there's actually a video that's done by I believe it's Elder Cook and a couple of historians from the church history department, including Matt Groh, the managing director. And he he kind of explains that there was a difference between that there were some women that were sealed to Joseph Smith for time and eternity. And there were many women that were sealed to him for just for eternity. And that there was a difference in that sealing. Um, we don't really have that different kind of sealing now. Now it's pretty much that you have one sealing that occurs. But the principle was to link people together to help them access the celestial kingdom, to assure them a spot, you know, that you have fulfilled this ceiling portion, that this this ordinance has been done. Um, and that it necessarily did not create a marriage tie during this life. It was both mostly a symbolic thing of, you know, you've been sealed to someone for eternity so that in the eternities you have an opportunity to achieve that celestial glory. Um, so I think that, you know, when we look at how all of this interacted, it's a very complicated thing, especially back then, where who was who was brought into this, who was kind of recommended or requested that they practice polygamy. It typically wasn't anyone and everyone. It was kind of selective as to who did it or who should be involved in that. And then, like like you were saying, a lot of this chapter 
doesn't pertain to polygamy at all or plural marriage at all. It's talking about the concepts of eternal marriage in the first place, um, including bringing up if you do have an eternal marriage and you aren't obedient and you continue to uh, commit sin or or whatever, then you aren't allowed into the celestial kingdom, even if you have checked the box, you know, so to speak. It says at the end of verse 18, um, they cannot therefore inherit my glory, for my house is a house of order, saith the Lord God. So it's not like, oh, we got a celestial marriage, now we're set. You still have to be obedient and obey the commandments and stuff like that, even if you have a celestial marriage. Um, it doesn't guarantee you anything. What it does is it just permit, it, it's, you know, it permits you access um, if you are obedient all the way through. I'm trying to see what else there was in here that. Yeah, I, I was thinking about uh, down at verse 34, 35, 36, where it's talking about Abraham. And uh, 35, where it says, was Abraham therefore under condemnation? Because he's saying that uh, when he took uh, Hagar, which I think mm -hmm. was the handmaiden uh, of Sarah, um, and, and sprang many people, it says in verse 34. Um, verily I say unto you, nay, for I the Lord commanded it, and Abraham was commanded to offer his son Isaac. Nevertheless, it was written, Thou shalt not kill. Abraham, however, did not refuse, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So that verse 36 really stuck in my mind because the Lord himself is kind of admitting, I told Abraham to do something that I have already told him he shouldn't do. Thou shalt not kill. But now I'm telling him, kill your son who's probably innocent and whom you've waited for so long who is an adult at this time he's you know and like um so so i i'm not i'm not satisfied with chalking up every unknown thing about the gospel as like a trial of faith like <laughs> oh, just that's just a trial i think there's a lot of things that we don't know and and how things happen and why the lord asks certain times and at certain seasons or certain people to do certain things and i think as latter-day saints we we've struggled even from the beginning of the restoration with the how do we well i i look at temple ceremonies and the temple is such a relief to everyone who doesn't um have an opportunity to receive the gospel in this life you know and i think under that same fervor 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 uh there might have been individuals who thought well i need to be sealed in order to get to the celestial kingdom right. so we have to do it here in the temple with these keys that have been that we've been told that whatever's done on earth will be bound in heaven and there are many people who have died in our in our time that are faithful and are have not found an eternal companion that's or or have eternal companions that that aren't keeping their covenants you know or whatever and we're to have faith and hope that in the next life in 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 the in the millennial all these things get sorted out right I, and to me i just i take all these complicated things and i boil them down to like i it's kind of like nephi does thou know the condensations when the spirit asks him do you know the condensations of god and he says no i don't but i know he loves his children and that's kind of where I end up with this topic of polygamy. It's like, I don't know all the reasons, but I know Jesus Christ, whom I pray to every day, 
I know that he's good. I know that he's not going to keep someone out of the Celestial Kingdom because they did not have an opportunity. You know, our whole gospel is built on all of these various ways of plan of salvation by which we receive the opportunities to fully embrace the Lord and his gospel. <clears throat> and so sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. Um, I don't think anyone that's going to be kept out because, oh, you should have gone on that one date or you weren't at this one location where your eternal companion would have been, <laughs> you know, like you decided to turn left on the street when you should have turned right. You know, I don't think it's like that. I think it's more uh, you be the best person that you are and try to be a disciple. If Because I, I it's funny because all of the covenants we make are individual, but the last covenant we make, which is the sealing covenant, you cannot do alone. It requires someone else to agree. And now you go from an individual thing to a, to a union or a family thing. And I kind of feel like that's a pattern for our existence. That we are now individually working out our salvation. But when we're in the celestial kingdom together, we're part of a greater whole. You know, we're, we're more united and you know, it's like a better civilization. I, I don't know. Um, and then <clears throat> the last thing, and then I'll shut up, is um, in verse 63, I thought it was interesting where, where well, in verse 62, uh, it, it's kind of, uh, uh, well, we can keep going. But in verse 63, it says, but if one of one or either of the ten virgins, after she is a spouse, she'll be with another man. She has committed adultery and shall be destroyed. For they are given unto him to multiply and replenish the earth. So that that principle is there. At no time have I, because the, the ugly side of polygamy is that it was a like a ravenous sexual appetite amongst individuals or men in power that wanted to just have a lot of sex, right? But the Lord says to multiply and replenish the earth has been some of the reasons why this is done. And to fulfill the promise that was given by, by my father before the foundation of the earth and for their exaltation in the eternal worlds, for they shall bear the souls of men. For therein the work of the father continues that he may be glorified. So we know that God's glory is to bring to pass the eternal life and immortality of men. That cannot happen if we are not multiplying and replenishing the earth so there's also like a practical replenishing and populating the species i say species but you know what i mean people um aspect to all of this you know and um yeah well <clears throat> and a lot of the criticism about ending polygamy was that it was the only reason they ended it was so they could get statehood but it was like you know guys were being thrown in jail because it was against the law to practice polygamy and that the church felt the pressure to change. And if they didn't change, all of them were going to be, all leadership was going to be in jail. And they were never going to get, become a state. There may be some truth to that. There may be some truth to that. Just like every other revelation that we've received, it sometimes it comes top down. It's the Lord saying, hey, here's a new thing you need to do. Other times it's a question being asked from the bottom up. It's the, the prophet saying, hey, Heavenly Father, we got this thing going on. What should we do? Hey, Heavenly Father, everyone's being thrown into jail and things aren't working out with this polygamy thing as society stands right now. What should we do? Should we continue to practice this or is it time to end it? 
And it's always up to the Lord to decide what, when that, when those changes occur. And was it a coincidence that the Lord said, yeah, maybe we should stop doing that now? Maybe not. Maybe he was like, yeah, not the time. The time has passed now for that. Right now, now we're more stable. Now we have, we need to have uh, greater support and greater in, involvement in society um, at large. So we need to do away with polygamy now. I don't know why it existed when it did and why it ended when it did when it did. But the point is, like, I don't I don't think that it was wrong to say. Should we continue doing this or is is this time up? It, well, it was practiced for like 50 years, so it really wasn't that long in the grand picture of things, you know, that it was being practiced um, in the video with with Matt Grow And I believe it's Kate Holbrook is the other historian. Uh, one of them, I can't remember which one, says that 20% of members today are descendants of people that practice polygamy. So you look at that, that's a pretty significant portion of the church. If there's 16 million members, you know, and 20% of them are descendants. Like there, like you said, there was a reason why we needed to kind of increase our numbers of faithful members. Yeah, and and like... Um... There's many revelations that we've seen so far in the Doctrine and Covenants that the Lord doesn't uh, force the revelation until we've asked the question. Right. You know, and a lot of them follow kind of the same pattern. Hey, Emma is not doesn't think it's becoming of the school of prophets to be chewing tobacco and smoking and the and the tars coming through the ceiling into our kitchen, whatever. Let me ask about this. Oh, well, let me tell you about you know, this law of health called the word of wisdom, right? Um, and then we also, I like the brother Jared's example with when the Lord tells him, hey, what should we do for air? And he says, well, make a hole on the top and in the bottom. If you open the hole and water comes in, plug it. Because you're underwater, you know, <laughs> and then give it some time so you can get air, right? And it's kind of like, oh, Lord, what should we do? Because we're being persecuted, thrown in jail, and 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 we might get, not get statehood. Well, maybe plug the hole. Right. Meaning, maybe let go of this practice, or maybe it's time to to move on. I don't know. I I can see that easily. And then my last thing, and I don't want to be disrespectful in any way. I want to be sure people understand that I respect the Prophet Joseph Smith, you know, but I also know he wasn't perfect. I also know that the 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 fruit of the restoration is the Book of Mormon, you know, and that the Prophet Joseph Smith was flawed like anyone else. And in verse 60, kind of lets us know where it says, let no one therefore set my servant Joseph, set on my servant Joseph, for I will justify him, for he shall do the sacrifice which I require of his hands for his transgressions, saith the Lord your God. So, one, he had transgressions, you know, and there were people that were noticing inconsistencies and flaws. And the Lord is saying, leave him alone. I will deal with him, you know, and his great sacrifice may be that he sealed his testimony with his blood. That he didn't get to see all the fruits of the church uh, grow, you know, kind of like Moses didn't get to step into uh, Canaan, you know, the law of promise, you know. Uh, and so for me, I take it as there may be some things that were done right. There may be some things that were run wrong. There may be some principles that were sound, but the uh, 
execution might have been wrong, you know. Right. And even from all of that, the Lord is able to make a church that grows. I think there there is nothing that the Lord can do that's fatal that he cannot heal. Hence the atonement. That's the essence of the atonement. All of our lives were shattered and were broken and we make mistakes. But if we go to him, he can turn those weaknesses into strengths. And there are things in the church history that I think might be have been wrong, should not have done or should not have done in certain ways, or maybe those weaknesses of the times and people that he then can turn into strengths. And I don't think that that's any different than the time we live in right now. The time we live in right now, we have a prophet. He's giving us counsel. How many of us choose to obey or how many of us choose to listen and look at other places? How much of the current things that the prophet is asking us to do, how much of that is just to try our, our obedience? There might not be no scientific, you know, uh, grand scheme behind all of it. It might just be to try your obedience. And we're okay with accepting such a big sacrifice like Abraham's, Abraham's sacrifice of his son as like, uh, to me, that one is like, that is a very big contradiction. That should not kill and now go kill my <laughs> beloved son. And we accept it as, oh, Abraham was faithful. He did it. it. It makes no sense. Like, logically, it's not a good thing to ask. It makes no sense. Well, there are things in our day that we're being asked to make small sacrifices, either for ourselves or for others or taking care of others or complying to certain policies or, 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 or mandates or whatever that... Are, could be just the same. It's just to try your obedience, right. you know. And we know that the first law, law in heaven is obedience, you know. Anyway, that's my rant. Yeah, I, I remember the first time my my family on my dad's side helped settle Ephraim, Utah, and a, a lot of other little pioneer towns too. But specifically, a lot of my family is buried in Ephraim. And we went there for one Memorial Day one time and uh, seeing my ancestors and seeing that, you know, their names on the front of the headstone. And then on one side was a woman's name. And I was like, oh, cool. That's my, my, you know, great, 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 great grandmother or whatever. And then my dad was like, yeah, come over here. And then on the back of the headstone was another woman's name. And on the other side of the headstone was another woman's name. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, I was probably like 12 or something. My dad was like, yeah, he, he was a polygamist. And I was like, it, it went from being this like weird thing that we didn't, you know, feel comfortable talking about as a people, as members of the church, to becoming a reality of my family history really fast. And it was kind of like, wait a second, this person that I descend from was a polygamist? My dad was like, yeah, and he it gave him the opportunity to kind of explain a little bit about church history and about obedience and about uh, some of the complicated past that our churches had. And obviously then he was able to kind of say, we don't do that anymore. And I, I'm married to your mom in the temple and this is why and, you know, this is why we don't do that anymore. It's no longer a commandment and you're, you're not going to be expected to do that. Don't worry. <laughs> you know. Um, and then kind of just bear testimony about the, the validity and the necessity of an eternal marriage. And it was, it's always one of those things that's difficult to talk about, especially because it's, 
I don't know. For me, it's one of those things that I'll probably always struggle with a little bit. I'll never feel perfectly comfortable talking about, oh, yeah, we did that. And it's OK that we did it. You know, it always feels like a little bit like, Ugh, yeah, we don't do it anymore. And that's good. Um, but it was a commandment at the time. And like I said, there were a select few individuals that were um, definitely a minority of the overall church population that were asked to do it or who who practiced polygamy. Um, but yeah, there came a time when the Lord basically said, we're not doing this anymore. It's no longer necessary. It's no longer a commandment. And um, now the commandment is the rest of this section, which is be married in the temple for in the new and everlasting covenant, right? And make sure that you live according to that for the rest of your life. Don't don't invalidate your your ceiling to your wife by committing sin and by living in sin. Um, do everything you can to to obtain that celestial kingdom, including this. It's an interesting interesting section, that's for sure. Let us be awake and not be wary of well-doing, for we are laying the foundation of a great work, even preparing for the return of the Savior. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.